0: Enjoy the Game, by Lionel Burney. Chapter 8. Jerry and Pat. They could thrash the European champions in a one-off cup tie, but in the league, Watford were treading water. They were in danger of becoming known as a cup team. Graham Taylor prided himself on trying to win every game, but on their travels, Watford were neither ruthless enough nor stubborn enough. The first 15 away trips of the season brought five draws and ten defeats. Progress was slow, and they still had not lifted themselves out of the bottom half of the second division. Taylor stood by his principles, despite some criticism from the supporters. "'I could never say to the players, "'Let's go to Cardiff and think in terms of not losing the game. "'It just wasn't in me to believe in going into a game "'telling the players, let's just not lose. "'I could say the words, "'but I'd sit on the coach all the way down feeling miserable,' he said. "'Some might argue that feeling miserable on the coach traveling to an away game was preferable "'to feeling miserable on the way back,' But Taylor would not compromise. Reaching the quarter-final of the FA Cup the previous season, and now the last eight of the League Cup, had boosted Taylor's transfer budget. So it was time to add some fresh blood. In November 1980, he signed three players, one from each of the North London Giants, and the other from 3rd Division Oxford United. Taylor also tried to sign a young defender from Bristol Rovers called Gary Mabbott, but felt the asking price was too high. The three players who did join would all be instrumental, come the big push. Les Taylor was first to arrive. It was not a glamour signing, but Taylor was perfect for the engine room. Graham Taylor swapped striker Keith Cassells and £100,000 for the 23-year-old midfielder who had been made Oxford's captain at the age of 21. When I heard Watford had made a bid, I looked in the paper to see where they were, he says. They were six from bottom. a division higher so it was a progressive step I'll be honest at the time I was thinking that if I did well at Watford I might get a transfer on I was moving to better myself and play at a higher level I had no idea how it would turn out Graham really sold the club to me but what was attracted to me was that he wanted to play attacking football if we could win 5-4 Graham would be happier than if we won 1-0 I had played against Watford and they thrashed us Ross Jenkins scored four. They were very direct, but when you've got a guy who's six foot four inches tall and can pluck it out of the sky like Ross could, you'd have been stupid not to play it to him. They completely overwhelmed us that day. I was always a very energetic player. I could run all day, but they really made life hard for you. My starting wage was about £250 a week, but there was a good win bonus and a crowd bonus for anything more than 15000 I was never thrown by money, but I thought that if we won a few games, and we did it playing attractive football, there might be a few bonuses in it for me. Taylor played on the right-hand side of midfield for Oxford, but wanted to play in the centre. His first game was against Luton Town at Vicarage Road on a Tuesday night. There was a big crowd and a spicy atmosphere. I started on the bench, which didn't worry me, he says. Luton scored early and were leading 1-0 at half-time. Taylor replaced Callahan at half-time, and playing on the right, he was presented with an early chance to make himself the hero. Malcolm Poskett absolutely hammered the ball across the face of Gaul. I was right on the lane. There was nobody there. The goalkeeper was out of position. But the ball came across so quickly it went between my legs. I could have equalised against Luton. That would have been a good start. After the match, the manager had a quiet word with his new signing. ''Well, one thing's clear.'' You're not a right winger, are you? He said it in the right tone and in the right way and I was quite pleased because I wanted to play in central midfield anyway, says Les Taylor. I was not quick but I was a clever player and I worked hard. The next match against Blackburn I played in the middle of midfield but I just couldn't get into the game. He substituted me and I was thinking, hey, maybe I'm not quite as good as I thought. After that we had the League Cup games against Coventry I was cup-tied so couldn't play, and after that he wanted to keep his cup-side so I didn't play for a few weeks. As a result, it took me a while to get settled in. Two Irishmen, one from the red half of North London, the other from the lily-white half, arrived around the same time. They were each a statement of intent. Jerry Armstrong cost Watford a quarter of a million pounds, the most the club had spent on a player. Pat Rice had been captain of Arsenal, I hope this proves to the fans and the players that we are going to try to become a leading club, Taylor told the Watford Observer. Armstrong was 26 years old and had represented Northern Ireland 27 times, but he had the raw, unpolished enthusiasm of a younger man because he was still relatively inexperienced. He didn't play his first organised game of football until he was 17. Had he not been banned from Gaelic football for fighting, he might never have played soccer at all. Fights used to break out all over the pitch in Gaelic, he says. When something kicked off, you wouldn't stand there and watch. You had to keep your eyes on your nearest opponent, because if it broke out over there, it was a cue to fight everywhere. Armstrong shakes his head in amusement. It was a very confrontational game, but it was fun. I loved it. But if you break a guy's jaw in several places, they will suspend you, he says of the incident that led to him switching sports. The incident was nothing particularly unusual, he says, except that he had a plaster cast on his hand to protect an already broken knuckle. Armstrong went up to catch the ball and was flattened by two opponents. As he crashed to the ground, one of them landed on his injured hand and his temper snapped. Instinctively, Armstrong threw a punch. The plaster cast broke his opponent's jaw and Armstrong was given a six-month ban. Soccer was considered a bit soft on the streets of Belfast. And apart from a kickabout in the street, Armstrong had never played the game. After being suspended from Gaelic, he started playing football for St Paul's Swifts, then moved up to Cromac Albion before being spotted by Bangor, who played in the Irish League. As soon as he started playing soccer, he decided he wanted to be a striker. That was the best position because he could make a name for himself. Armstrong was quick, full of running. Playing on the huge Gaelic pitch meant I had lords of stamina and he was fearless in front of goal. If a shot went high or wide it didn't matter because another chance would come along in a minute. Armstrong made his debut for Bangor at the age of eighteen. Old habits die hard. I made my debut as a sub, he says. I came on with about twenty minutes to go. I lasted ten. The score was 1-1 when Armstrong went on. I took the ball past the centre-half and put it into the net to make it 2-1. The centre-half said to me, Next time you go by me, I'm going to do you. When you've played Gaelic, you're programmed. If someone says they're going to do you, get your retaliation in first. So I whacked him and got sent off. Banger's manager Bertie Neal tore Armstrong to pieces but persisted with him because he could see potential. Banger won the County Antrim Shield, usually dominated by the big clubs such as Linfield and Crusaders, and the scouts travelled across the water to have a look at Armstrong. Most thought there were too many question marks. I was very inconsistent, he says. I didn't really get to grips with the offside rule. In 1975, Tottenham Hotspur's manager Terry Neal did take a chance on Armstrong. He was 21, but realised he was behind many of the much younger youth team players in terms of technique. I would do extra training with the youth team to work on my skills. We had to chip the ball up into a circle painted about eight feet up on the wall. Then control it on your chest and volley the rebound into the goal. That was tough for me because I'd never done anything like it. One day Peter Shreves, the coach, asked Glenn Hoddle to give us a demonstration. Hoddle was three years younger than me. He said, which foot do you want me to hit it with? Shreves said, whichever you want. Glenn said, okay, I'll chip it in with my right then volley it with my left, and that's exactly what he did. There was an elegance and poise about him that made it look so easy. I thought, holy shite, how am I going to follow that? And this lad's three years younger than me. It made me determined to keep working, until I could do it almost as well as Glenn. Within eighteen months of joining Tottenham, Armstrong had made his Northern Ireland debut. It was a five-nil defeat in West Germany. I did okay in the first half, but had a shocker in the second and missed a setter. The best I can say about it is that I made my debut in the same team as George Best. By then, Keith Birkinshaw had replaced Terry Neal as manager, and Spurs had been relegated to the second division. Armstrong's endurance and willingness to try his best had turned him into a utility player. I remember going to West Brom, and Keith told me to play in defence and mark Cyril Regis, who was strong and lightning-quick. We won 1-0, and Keith became convinced I was a centre-half. I played all over the place, in midfield, at right-back, but I really wanted to play up front. In November 1977, injuries gave Armstrong a rare chance to play as a striker for Spurs. He scored twice. A few days later, he played for Northern Ireland against Belgium at Windsor Park and scored another couple in a 3-0 win. The first one was an obsolete cracker. I came back to Spurs on the Thursday and Keith said to me, Well, you've had some week. I went to the notice board to look at the squad for Saturday's game and I wasn't with the first team. Peter Shreves, the reserve team manager, said to me, I'm just doing as I'm told. You're with me at Bristol City. I looked down the list. Number five, Armstrong. There I was in the reserve team playing centre-half. Four goals in a week and Keith thinks I'm a defender. Armstrong stayed at White Hart Lane for another three years until he finally said, Enough is enough. I don't want to play at centre-half. When it came to the transfer talk, I met Graham Taylor in a car park somewhere. He'd tried to sign me on a number of occasions. He wanted me to go to Lincoln on loan, but I didn't want to go on loan. The first thing I said to him was, I want to play up front. He said, Good, because that's where I want to play He said he played with two wingers and he wanted to attack, and I thought, I love this guy. At Spurs we played with one winger at home and none away, and they were one of the more attractive sides. It was a record fee for Watford, and he asked me what I felt about that. I told him it didn't bother me in the slightest. One day Sam Ellis was sent to watch Arsenal reserves against Queen's Park Rangers reserves. Graham Taylor wanted a report on a particular player. What was he like? Any good? asked Taylor. No, said Ellis, he's not for you. But I think I might have found you a captain. Pat Rice was born in Belfast but brought up in North London, not far from Highbury. Arsenal was his club. He had played there for sixteen years. He'd won the double and later captained the side. Rice was thirty-one and in two minds about which direction to take next. Millwall had offered him a job as player-manager and there was a chance to play in America which would have been lucrative. Then Bertie Mee, his old manager, rang up saying that Graham Taylor would like a word. Watford offered me a five-year contract, which would take me up to retirement, says Rice. It gave me the security I was after, and they said there would be a chance to get involved with some coaching in the fourth and fifth years. I didn't know a lot about Watford, to be truthful. I remembered they had beaten Manchester United with those two goals from Luther, but the gods on his truth is that when you're playing in the first division, you don't really pay too much attention to what's going on in the lower divisions. It wasn't until after I'd signed that I looked at the table and saw they were near the bottom. After the first training session, I knew this group of players were too good to be down there. Taylor wanted Rice to organise and inspire. When Ellis had been to watch that reserve game, the thing that struck him was that Rice's voice stood out above everyone else's. He was always talking, cajoling, coaxing and rollicking. At Arsenal, if you didn't talk on the pitch, they were on your back about it, Rice says. When the ball is on the other side, they wanted to know what was going on behind them, so if you didn't talk, they would hammer you. Communication is so important, particularly at the back, and I took a bit of that to Watford. On Rice's first day, Graham Taylor introduced his new signing to the squad. This is Pat Rice. He's going to be our captain, but because of his age, "'He may have the odd day off to recover,' said the manager. "'I never did get a day off,' Rice says. "'I wouldn't have wanted to be treated any differently, "'but the first six months were a real shock to the system. "'I didn't have a clue about the style of play, "'and it came as a complete and utter surprise. "'I was used to bending the ball in for the winger or the forward. "'Now, whenever the goalkeeper took a goal kick, "'I had to run up to the halfway line quickly to pin the other team in. "'It was knackering.' I had no idea what I would find at Watford and I suppose having been at Arsenal so long and coming towards the end of my career I wasn't quite prepared for it. I'd never worked so hard in my life. If you were injured you still had to come in at 9am. If you were two minutes late you had to buy lunch for everyone in the treatment room. If there were five or six injured that added up. When I came in a part of me was thinking this was my last job before retirement but the ball started rolling and suddenly you're fighting for each other on the pitch socialising together and wanting to win every match. It gave me a new lease of life when, I suppose, I was starting to think about winding down. There was such a competitive atmosphere. Early on, Sam Ellis said to me, I thought you were a big tough guy. I said, what are you on about? He said, I thought you were a hard man, but all you do is run alongside wingers. I've never seen you put in a tackle yet. Well, the next game, I thought, I'll fucking show them. So I hit everyone hard. I kicked everything that moved. And Sam said, that's more like it. That's what I was expecting. Sometimes you just need someone to pull you up and let you know you're not as good as you think you are. The two Irishmen, Rice and Armstrong, were strong characters, but they fitted in quickly. At Spurs, there were two or three cliques, but Watford's dressing room was always together, says Armstrong. Jerry and Pat brought something different, says Blissit. Pat had a calmness and experience we had been lacking, and whatever story you had... Jerry had one to top it. The belief he had in himself was absolutely amazing. During one game, Armstrong tried a shot from inside his own half that flew high over the bar. After the game, Taylor said, Jerry, just talk me through what you were thinking with that shot. Well, Gaffer, if that shot had been on target, I might have scored, he replied. You couldn't argue with that, says Steve Harrison. He wasn't wrong. You had to love him. The manager let it go on the first day, but when Jerry Armstrong continued to call him Graham instead of gaffer or boss, the following day he had to say something. Armstrong didn't realise he was doing anything wrong. He'd always called his manager at Tottenham by his first name. Harrison was loving it, knowing that it was winding up the manager, and he wanted to see how far things would go, so he urged the other lads not to let on to Armstrong. "'He's a lovely fella, Jerry. Always really upbeat, always smiling,' says Harrison." His first couple of days at training, he came out wearing these shorts that had a little pocket inside for your keys or some money. We were running round the pitch doing our warm-up and all you could hear was Jerry's change jingling with every step. I was running next to Pat Rice and I said, ''Oh dear, look at the gaffer's jugular. The vein in Graham's neck was going.'' Then Jerry says, ''Lovely day for training, this Graham.'' I said to Pat, ''Oh no, now he's called him Graham. This is going to be good.'' Graham had steam coming out of his ears. Taylor bit his tongue. A bit later on, they were doing some man-marking drills. The rule was you were only allowed to tackle the person you were marking, says Armstrong. I was marking Callie, but Luther had the ball, and as he came by me instinctively, I slid in and nicked it. Taylor blew the whistle. Stop! He's not your man. I know, Graham. I'm sorry about that. It was just instinctive. "'Here we go. This is it,' thought Harrison. "'And another thing. I just want to make a point,' said Taylor. "'Now, you may not have noticed, Jerry, but at this club all the lads call me boss or gaffer, not Graham, Okay, Harrison and the rest were trying not to laugh. "'That's fine by me, Graham,' said Armstrong. "'I wasn't trying to be clever. It just slipped out,' says Armstrong now. We had a bit of a screaming match, and he put me in my place. He was my boss, and he was a very good boss. And it was a while before I called him Graham again, that's for sure. Even after I left the club, he was still the gaffer. The League Cup run came to an abrupt end at Highfield Road. Watford led Coventry City 2-1 in the fifth round match at Vicarage Road, but conceded an equaliser and had to travel to the Midlands for a replay. On the Saturday, between the two Coventry games, Watford beat Notts County 2-0. Although he kept a clean sheet, it was a match that marked the end of Eric Steele's run in the team. I couldn't believe he left me out for the Coventry replay, he says. I didn't agree with him, but I respected Graham and that was his decision. Taylor had decided that Steve Sherwood deserved another chance. Of the two goalkeepers, he felt Sherwood had benefited most from a spell of coaching from Alan Hodgkinson, the former England international. The two goalkeepers were very different. I know Graham wanted me to come for crosses, which was not Eric's style, says Sherwood. Eric would wait for the header or shot to come in and then make the save. I think Graham wanted me to impose myself on the penalty box a bit more and come for crosses. Eric also used to throw the ball out from the back, whereas I could kick it a long way, which was something else Graham wanted. I was perhaps a bit too eager in that game and probably tried too hard to do the things I knew the manager thought I could do better than Eric. Watford were buried. 5-0. Coventry centre-forward, Mark Haightley was a menace all evening, and after picking the ball out of the net a fifth time, Sherwood thought, God, this is a disaster, I've blown my chance. We had a team meeting after that game, says Rice. Graham's meetings were legendary. He did all the talking and you did all the listening but to be fair he picked his moments to point out a few facts. There was maybe a feeling that they'd beaten all these teams from the First Division in cup matches and that it was going to happen again but Coventry reminded them that if you take your foot off the pedal you get punished. It was the kick up the backside we needed. Watford's league form began to improve and lost only four of their last twenty league matches. We had a great run, says Les Taylor. You could see that the mix of the team was right and I started to feel that we could challenge for promotion. There was a hunger at Watford. Whereas at Spurs there was a bit of a swagger, says Armstrong. We were very fit and the manager told us that teams would begin to tire in the last 15 minutes and the chances would come. When he tells you that week after week and it keeps happening you have this belief that drives you on. You want to be fit and hungry to take advantage when the opponents are starting to tire. Rice's experience gave the defence a solidity it lacked. Signing Putt was a masterstroke, says Ian Bolton. People said he'd get murdered because of his lack of pierce, but the first five yards were in his head. He never got taken to the clean as once. His positional sense was inspirational, and the rest of the defence benefited. When you have been captain of the Arsenal, you've seen most things, says Rice, but I was shown something new at Watford. I had not been encouraged to push up so much before, and I saw there was a different way to play the game. Yes, I had played in the first division, and Graham had not, but he was a manager, and I had not been a manager, so there was a tremendous amount to learn from him. After Christmas, we beat near enough everybody, and there was this feeling that we didn't want the season to end. We thought we were just starting something. Taylor was determined to keep squeezing his players to see how much they could give. After a 2-1 defeat against Preston North End at Deepdale one Saturday in February, the team travelled home on the train while Taylor sat in simmering silence. "'We had absolutely murdered Preston,' says Armstrong. "'But they had scored the goals and we hadn't.' We got off the train, and Graham called a meeting on the platform. "'Right,' said Taylor. "'I want everyone at the training ground tomorrow at 9am in their kit. That performance was not acceptable.' Chelsea must have been away because a load of their supporters got off a train, says Rice. They were saying, Go on, Graham, give them some stick, lay into them. And he did lay into us. Armstrong says, I thought, Jesus Christ, we murdered Preston. They had three shots and scored two, and now we've got a train on a Sunday. Sam Ellis rang me the following day and told me that Graham would do things like that to see how we reacted. After spending their Sunday running, Watford played Red Star Belgrade in a friendly on the Monday night. Two days after that, Taylor took a full-strength side to play a reserve team fixture at Wimbledon. Watford won 6-0 with Blissett scoring three. We rang Wimbledon in advance, and had they not wanted to face a full-strength team, we wouldn't have taken one, said Taylor. It was not a punishment. It was a chance to bed in a new-look team. Slowly the side began to take shape, with Rice organising the defenders, Les Taylor's bustling combatedness in midfield and Armstrong getting the hang of the runs up front. Around that time, Ken Furphy, the former Watford manager who was now in charge of the Washington Diplomats in the United States, made a bid for Ross Jenkins, and Taylor let him go. Jenkins had broken his ankle in a match at Swansea just before Christmas and had struggled to regain fitness. Taylor thought a spell playing in the States during the spring and summer would help. Taylor also dropped Ray Train suddenly. Train had played 71 consecutive league games in the 2nd Division without even being substituted and looked to be part of the furniture, so it was a surprise to see him replaced. During those games, we have not operated in the top half of Division 2, Taylor said at the time. I am not saying Ray is the reason for that, but I am looking to build a team to go on. Wilf Rostron was one of a number of players put on the transfer list. Why did Arsenal and Sunderland let Wilf go? asked Taylor. Wilf has settled for the fact that both clubs appointed new managers who didn't see him as their predecessors did, but let's have a look at it. Maybe it is a matter of consistency. When Watford defeated Sheffield Wednesday on May 2nd, 1981, they moved into the top half of the second division table for the first time. Victory over Wrexham on the last day hoisted them to ninth, the club's highest ever finish. The groundwork for a promotion challenge had been laid. At the end of the season, Taylor told Steve Harrison and John Ward they were being released, though it wouldn't be too long before they were both back in coaching roles. By the time they returned, Watford would be a first division club. Their strong finish to the season showed they were ready to mount a big push for promotion. They just needed a little something extra. And they found it on a local park. End of chapter 8 Next time Finding John Barnes A teenager is the last piece of the jigsaw